Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Christopher Fryman. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of William and Mary. His new book is called Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Chris. Thanks for having me again. Trevor and I have spent now 363 episodes of this show talking about politics, and particularly why politics controls too much of our lives and what we can do about it. So it seems odd that you would make the case, you know, you're not directing it at us, but in general, why you would make the case that it's okay to ignore politics. Like, have Trevor and I missed something? Should we just shut this show down and talk about, say, superheroes instead? Maybe, maybe. I hadn't thought of this, actually, when I wrote the book, but this might end up being the last episode ever if I come up with a persuasive enough argument. So we'll have to see. So there are lots of reasons. Do you think it's okay to ignore politics? Um, we might ha you know, have reasons to engage with politics. We could talk about some of those. But I think for the typical person, uh, it's not obligatory to keep track of politics or to vote or to be politically active. I think there are a number of reasons for this. One is just it, it tends to make us miserable. So we spend lots and lots of time uh, watching the news or, or looking at our Facebook feed where we're reading about politics, and it just infuriates us. I talk about some of the evidence in the book, but tens of millions of Americans report that they feel stressed from politics. They have anxiety about politics. And the strange thing is, it's not as though keeping track of politics enables us to do good in the world. So it's not as though we're enduring all this stress and anxiety, but for a really good cause, say, you know, we could help lots of people with in this information. Uh, it turns out that, you know, for example, it's, it's well known that your vote is extraordinarily unlikely to make a difference. Uh, so your political activity is very unlikely to be consequential. So we're putting ourselves through all this misery for, for virtually nothing. And so you'd be happier, I think. So I don't know. I don't know about, you know, you two, Trevor and, and Aaron, you know, if, if you're miserable as a result of talking politics uh, hundreds of times. But for, I think for many people, it does make them miserable, but they do it out of a sense of it's, a, it's maybe like a grim sense of duty, like I have to do this. But I question why uh, it's if you don't think that you'll actually be able to do good in the world as a result of the attention that you pay to politics, the political participation that you engage in, I say, disengage from it and spend the time and resources you would have spent on politics on something else that's going to do more good. But is your, is your thesis like aggregatable? I mean, I, this is almost like a Kantian question when I know you're not a Kantian, but uh, if everyone ignored politics, uh, that might be a bad thing. Uh, be, or the people who d decided to not ignore politics might be more venal and and self-interested and evil. So maybe it's important to participate in politics to make sure that the people who have bad motives don't take over. Right. So there are a couple of ways we could interpret this style of objection. So one objection is that – and this is an objection that I sometimes get when I make my argument in favor of ignoring politics, say, look, I, I don't care so much if you, a single individual, abstains from politics, but don't write a book about it, because then this is going to cause lots and lots of people to drop out of politics, and this would be really bad. This is one interpretation of that argument. I'm unpersuaded by this argument, although I like it because it's very flattering, because it presumes that I will be extremely influential, that my book is going to sell lots of copies, and I'm going to change millions of minds. I would love it 
if that were to happen. I'm not convinced that's going to happen. So I don't think there's a huge worry that I, Chris Fryman, will, will unravel American democracy. If, if, if it starts, you know, when the second edition comes around, if I've sold millions of copies and that has happened, then maybe I'll recant some of the stuff that I said, but I think we're safe for now. <laughs> uh, a, a second version of this, and, and Trevor, I think this is more of the Kantian style of objection that you have in mind, is not so much that I, as a single individual, will unravel the practice of voting for everyone, but it, this is just a test of whether or not abstaining from politics is permissible. So you say, well, yeah, it's true that you as a single individual won't have a difference. But if everyone were to follow your advice, it would be really bad. And this shows that there's something wrong with abstaining, whether or not people will actually abstain as a result of your argument. And I think a, a successful rebuttal to this objection was made a while back by Jeff Brennan and Lauren Lamaskey. And they, they basically argue that this kind of universalization or generalization objection simply proves too much. It would show that too many things are wrong when, in fact, the, these sorts of things are perfectly permissible. So you might think of voting as a kind of temporary occupation. You say, I'm going to research my vote. I'm going to debias my vote. And then I'm going to cast my vote. And, you know, I'll, I'll spend some time doing this. It's a short-term sort of occupation. Say, so, well, if nobody does that, it would be really bad. But that might be true. Um, however, you could make that style of argument against long-term occupations as well. So somebody says, uh, you know, you're not a farmer. Uh, and that, it would be really bad if, if nobody was farming. Uh, we would starve to death. And I say, yeah, that, that's true. Um, but I don't think that obliges me as a particular individual to engage in farming. So the mere fact that it would be bad if no one farmed doesn't imply that I, as a single individual on the margin, have to farm. And I think a similar reply works for voting. So maybe it would be terrible if nobody voted, uh, but that no more obliges me to be a voter than the fact it would be terrible if no one farmed obliges me to be a farmer. But isn't it the case that we have mechanisms to prevent the nobody farming, the, the individual choices to not become a farmer turning into nobody farming, which would then be bad? So if, you know, which is market prices, we have, we have this mechanism that says, you know, if we need this thing and there's a bunch of providers of it, the, the price they can each charge, you know, the competition drives down the price. But if there were very few farmers and we really needed them, we'd be pay, willing to pay a lot of money, which might then convince you to give up being a philosophy professor and become a farmer. Is there something that would be a similar corrective in voting so we don't end up in a slippery slope of going down to total non-participation? I think there is. And Brennan and Lamaski make this point. So, so I give credit to them for this point. They say, look, as, as more and more people drop out – and stop voting, what this does is actually increase the power of an individual vote. So to take the most extreme case, suppose everybody stopped voting. Well, then I would have very powerful reasons to vote because my vote would dictate the outcome of the election. And so it, it actually does seem as though there's a similar mechanism. So as fewer and fewer people vote, an, ind an individual vote becomes more valuable, which presumably would draw more people back into voting in the same way that, you know, uh, if salaries for farming became very high, it would draw more people into farming. I would have to be paid a lot of money to farm, by the, to, to induce me to leave philosophy for farming. It would take a lot of money. Uh, but there is a similar sort of 
corrective in the case of voting, which is it, it, your, your uh, vote, the power of your vote becomes amplified when more people drop out. And then narrow Trevor's Kantian objection um, to one that I, I have heard directed at me. So I, I don't vote. Um, I consider myself a principled non-voter, and I have made in the past arguments similar to the ones that you make in this book, um, at least saying that you know you shouldn't feel obligated to vote. And one of the objections that I hear from people is that I, Aaron Powell, am a advocate of a very minority political viewpoint. Libertarianism is not widely shared in the American electorate, and this argument about abstaining from politics is also quite popular among libertarians. You know, you're making it, Jason Brennan has made it, um, libertarians frequently are the ones saying you don't have an obligation to vote. And so is it is it essentially a self-defeating position that we desperately want the political system to change? We want it to change in ways that there is not yet a critical mass for, and we are telling the very people who we most need to have on our team to get the world we want it to be, to abstain from trying to change it. So I think I think my reply to this comes back to the earlier point about influence. So I think if it, if, if it were the case that um, what what I was in fact doing and making these arguments and in writing this book were uh, was causing a lot of people who would say vote well or move the American political system in a better direction, um, and and that this actually has a negative impact. Then I would say, yeah, that, that's that's a problem. Um, and, and like I said, if I'm that influential, where I'm causing, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to drop out, that could be a problem. Uh, but as I said, I, I don't think I'm all that influential. I mean, here's another reason to think I'm not all that influential. Um, so, so people will, will will object to my argument on these grounds. They say, maybe you don't have to vote, but don't tell people not to vote because this will cause these very bad consequences. And I asked them, okay, have I persuaded you not to vote? And they almost always go, no, I am still going to vote. So I, I fear that I'm just not that persuasive. Uh, but, but again, if it were the case that uh, this argument against voting or against this idea that we have an obligation to vote was causing lots and lots of, of potentially good voters to drop out, and this had a meaningful and negative impact on the American political system. That, that would be bad. Uh, and so maybe people who are who are super influential should be telling people to vote, but not just to vote, but vote well, vote with information, vote without bias, and so on. But I also think that's compatible with saying you as a particular individual on the margin need not vote simply because your individual vote is going to be so inconsequential. It's not going to make a difference to anything. What do you mean by politics uh, in this sense? So we've been talking about voting right now. Uh, and of course, politics is bigger than just voting. And some people would argue that politics is everything. The personal is political. Uh, we see this, I think, from the left a lot that the, the way you behave in the workplace, how you treat other people is political. So in some sense, it's not only impossible to ignore politics, it's immoral to not regard yourself as a cog in a machine of power, even even when you're not in the voting booth. So how are we delineating the definition here of politics? So what I have in mind is primarily attempts to influence 
the formal political process. So voting is the most straightforward case. But I also have in mind things like phone banking, protests, and so on. I wouldn't, for, so for my purposes, I wouldn't call something like community engagement or providing direct people, uh, direct help to people in uh, need of it. I wouldn't count that as political. I mean, so we could just say, well, by definition, anytime you're going out into the community and trying to make make it better, you're doing something political. I'd say, well, okay, I'll, I'll grant you the term. Um, but but my, my view is that it is at a minimum permissible and perhaps even obligatory, and we could get to the obligatory claim later if you want, but it's at least permissible to say, no, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to attend protests. Uh, I'm not going to put one of those signs in my front yard uh, broadcasting who I'm voting for. I'm just going to ignore that stuff. And I'm going to allocate the effort that I would have allocated to formal political participation to other sorts of things. In particular, maybe you spend that time working overtime and you take the extra income that you earned as a result of working overtime and donate it to effective charities like the Against Malaria Foundation. I think at a minimum that's permissible. So maybe it's obligatory, but you're actually doing more good for the world in that case. And again, maybe we count that as political. I, I, I'm disinclined to do that. But I would say if you want to count that as political, that's fine. Uh, what I care about more is that you understand it's not obligatory to vote or to protest, and it's perfectly fine to spend that time doing other things that provide more help. Much of the beginning of the book is spent setting out the case that we don't know as much about politics as we think we do. We tend to overestimate, in fact, our our degree of knowledge by a pretty substantial amount, um, that that learning enough to pick the correct side or the correct um, choice on an issue requires much more time than we might anticipate because there's so many unknowns and there's so much information you need. So you're making the case that we don't have enough information to vote well, and therefore most of us should not do it, right? That, that's right. So I think most of us don't have the information. And now from this, we might conclude that we should, in fact, spend a lot of time acquiring that information. But the problem with that is that, you know, that comes with an opportunity cost. So all of the time that you spend informing yourself is time spent or is time not spent on other endeavors that do more good. So one reason why I think we, we know less than we think we know is because, I mean, just think about the number of policy issues that are relevant to deciding which candidate to vote for. You know, gun control, immigration, abortion, criminal justice, racial justice, you know, capital, all, all of these things. Uh, and, and I think it's very likely that one candidate is going to be better with respect to some of these issues than the other candidate. And, and one reason for thinking about this or, or for thinking that this is true is just because these policy platforms that presidential candidates have are not really internally connected. They're not, uh, they're not unified in the way that you might think they are. So you, you would say, uh, you know, people who support school vouchers also tend to support abortion restrictions and, you know, fairly easy access to guns. Whereas people who oppose school vouchers also tend to oppose what we might think of as easy access to guns uh, and oppose abortion restrictions. And you think to yourself, huh, what do guns, school vouchers and abortion have to do with each other uh, in terms of the empirical evidence, in terms of the moral argument? I think the answer is not a whole lot, 
these issues are just separate from one another. And so it's strange that they, they cluster in this way. And we could talk about why they cluster. I think it has to do with just aligning yourself with a particular partisan team. But you say, okay, given that these uh, issues that are relevant to casting a vote are just totally different, it's quite plausible that one candidate is better on education, the other candidate's better on immigration, the other candidate's better on drug prohibition, uh, the other candidate's better on you know criminal justice, whatever the case may be. So you say, okay, well then, if one's better than the other uh, on these dimensions and the other's better on those dimensions, which dimension is more important? How much better along these dimensions are they? It's just very, very hard. Uh, to make that sort of calculation. And you could sit down and roll up your sleeves and spend a lot of time trying to think about that and acquire information and make sure that you're processing this information in a biased way, uh, in an unbiased way. But that's hard. That takes a lot of time. So it's not just sitting back, drinking a beer and watching the presidential debates. It's It takes work. And my thought is, well, why are you putting all this work uh, to cast an informed and debiased vote that really won't make a difference. Wouldn't it be better to spend that time doing something that actually will make a difference to people's lives, that will result in people getting fed who otherwise wouldn't get fed or sheltered who otherwise wouldn't get sheltered? Is there a tension, though, there with the conversation we had at the beginning of the episode about the ineffectiveness of your vote, that if my vote doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter how I cast it. And so it wouldn't seem to matter then if I cast it based on sufficient or quality information or, you know, I cast it based on fantasies in my head, lack of information, stuff I read in a QAnon message forum or so on. Like, why why should we care about the quality of the vote if the vote doesn't matter in the first place? So I think that's a fair point. So I think it, it, it is sort of a strange implication. So you think, well, OK, if, if you're going to cast a vote, but it's inconsequential, it might be better to cast a cheap bad vote uh, if that frees up resources for you to do good elsewhere than spend ten, spend tons and tons of time casting a good vote. Uh, so I think that's a, a fair point. But the worry here is that if we want to argue that maybe you have some sort of consequentialist duty to vote. So the idea is that, well, uh, so, so one argument is at least in certain states, so a, a handful of key swing states, uh, the odds of your vote making a difference are not so low as to be virtually nothing. So maybe you have a one in 10 million chance. So you say, okay, maybe in a handful of states, you could make a plausible consequentialist argument for voting uh, that you could actually do a lot of good. But for that argument to go through, it's not enough to just go to the polls and cast a random vote. You would actually have to do research to figure out whether you're voting for the candidate that's that's uh, more likely to, to increase social welfare or something like that. But I think in the case of uh, casting a, a, an inconsequential vote, like a vote in California or something like that, I actually think, yeah, like then it, it's hard to see why it really matters if you're casting an informed vote. I can see maybe expressive reasons not to cast a, a totally terrible vote. Uh, so in the same way that, you know, I use this example, like it would be wrong to boo a great humanitarian, uh, even though it doesn't actually make a difference. It's like it, it expresses something about you if you're booing this great humanitarian. If you're casting a bad vote, it might say something negative about you and your character, uh, even if it doesn't really make a difference. So we've been, we've been talking a lot about <clears throat> voting, but your book is why it's okay to ignore politics. And that you could it seems like a different set of questions not so much you're being inconsequential uh as a vote which we can you know 
definitely concede. But what about the kind of stuff that so so this this show, for example, and what Aaron and I do professionally, that we believe that it's important that we have these conversations with people like you about issues that matter, and we hope that people listen to this show and then become engaged in the ideas. And more than even voting, we hope that they, you know, when they're having drinks with their friends in the bar, that they, you know, remember this thing that they heard on this podcast. And so, you know, I'm not sure that's absolutely true, you know, that uh, say sweatshop laws or child labor laws are a good thing. And that we have this percolating downstream effect uh, because we're engaging in some sort of politics and so are our listeners. That seems like the possibility of having more of an effect than voting, uh, since we're talking, but and maybe that that's the kind of thing you should be doing more. Uh, but that's definitely not ignoring politics. Right. So this show might be, might be an exception. So you have a large audience. And so, uh, th- this show does have the possibility of influencing a lot of people and changing their behavior. And so it might be different. Uh, for, for you and Aaron, uh, than for just uh, a typical citizen on the margin who lacks this forum. So by analogy, I think, it, you know, if you have a, you know, a decent chance of, say, becoming a senator, then it's my, my argument probably isn't going to apply to you. I think if, if you think you can have this influence and it's going to be a good influence, then you have pretty strong reasons to engage with politics. Uh, but I also think there are benefits to a show like this that go beyond the influence that you might have on people's behavior. I think discussing politics and expanding your intellectual horizons, these are just intrinsically valuable things, or at least for for many sorts of people. uh, This is just something that we find enjoyable. Uh, We like engaging with arguments from the other side and critically reflecting on our own beliefs. So I think sometimes engaging with politics can, can be a good thing in the same way that just kind of any philosophical debate can be a good thing uh, because we find it enjoyable and edifying and so forth. Does your argument apply to we, – we're talking about candidates um, and trying to figure out all the different bundles of things that a candidate might stand for, gun control, abortion rights, environmental regulation, whatever. But does it apply in situations where people might be thinking, listening to this now as we're recording two months before the American presidential or six weeks before the American presidential election, that sure, like Normal times, absolutely. When you had, say, Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton, trying to figure out what those two people stood for might not be worth your time. But right now, it doesn't really matter that you don't understand what Donald Trump stands for on a given issue. You just have to look at the man and understand that he's unacceptable. Or someone can make the same argument for Joe Biden. So this is not about researching your vote. This is just about noticing character and voting him out. So it is it is absolutely paramount now that you do not ignore politics. Does that does that change in some environments? Uh, this this your general thesis? I actually do agree with that. So so here's here's the concession that I will make to to voting. I think if you if you live in a swing state or a state where there's maybe a non-trivial chance that your vote will make a difference to the outcome, then you should, in fact, vote for Joe Biden uh, for the sorts of reasons that you mention. I think you don't really have to get into the policy details to see Donald Trump as a uniquely terrible president a threat to liberal democratic values. I, I think this is a, this is an easy case to know the value difference between candidates. So I think in this election, you don't need to do all of the deep debiasing or researching. Uh, you can go out and, and vote for Joe Biden. 
I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, but but so that also, though, like you said, that doesn't generalize to all other cases. So we might have other elections where we say, well, the value difference between the candidates is not so clear. And then I think you do have to do more work. And then the opportunity cost starts piling up. And, and one worry that I have is that we do tend to see every election as an easy one where it's the apocalypse if the out party wins. And so it's this, you know, it's really urgent that you vote for the in-party candidate. And I think we have to be on guard against that tendency as a general rule. But I will concede that in this election, uh, vote for Joe Biden. For the purposes of our Cato Institute does not endorse Joe Biden or Donald Trump for president. Uh, but Chris, you can say whatever you want. A counter to that swing state argument that I have heard is is to base it in, I guess, call it solidarity. That you have it's it's a luxury to not have to participate in the political process. It's a sign of privilege. And there are people out there who need to do the dirty work of, say, holding their nose and voting for someone they don't like because the other guy is even worse. And if and so on the one hand, we might be those of us who abstain from voting because like I live in Virginia where, you know, we know what Virginia is going to look like. In November, um, there's not much of a possibility of it, you know, surprising anyone in the outcome of its vote. Um, so I'm, I could be free riding off of them, taking advantage of the work that they're doing. But also, there's a solidarity sense of recognizing that they are taking on a burden, and so I am going to take on a burden too, so that they know that they're not alone. Yes, I think that's an important argument. So, right. So you talk about the, this kind of idea of free riding. If you allow other people to do the work to ensure that the world is a, is a more just place and there's less suffering in the world, it seems like you have an obligation to do some work yourself. I, I, I find that plausible. But I also think it's the case that you can do your fair share and you can uh, sort of act in solidarity with people who are voting well without casting your own vote. And this is an argument that Jason Brennan makes in The Ethics of Voting, and I think it's correct, which is just voting is one way of promoting justice and the common good, but it's not the only way. So maybe you do it by voting, maybe you do your fair share by voting, but you can do it in other sorts of ways. You can do it with direct community engagement. You can do it by working overtime and donating to effective charities and, and so on. So an analogy that I like to give, and this is a trivial analogy, but I think it gets the point across, is to a picnic. Uh, so, you know, if, if uh, Trevor brings uh, lemonade to the picnic and you drink it, uh, it seems like you have to reciprocate with a contribution of your own to the picnic. But this doesn't require you to bring more lemonade. In fact, it might actually be a bad idea for you to bring more lemonade because you got plenty of lemonade. So what maybe you have to do is bring, you know, napkins and paper plates or something like that. So you have to make some sort of contribution to the picnic, but it doesn't have to be the same contribution that other people are making. And as I said, it might even be inefficient for you to make the same sort of contribution. And so I think we can make an analogous argument about justice in general. So voting is, is one way to contribute to a more just world, but it's not the only way. And in fact, given that so many people are voting, your contribution to justice via the vote is trivial. So you can actually have more of an impact. You can do more good. You can, you can bring the world closer to the ideal of justice by abstaining from voting and pursuing justice in other sorts of ways. Should members of oppressed groups, such as, say, blacks in America during 
the Jim Crow era, ignore politics or refrain from participating in it? I mean, doesn't telling people to ignore politics risk reifying like social and economic hierarchies? So we effectively remove changing those hierarchies from political consideration. So I think that's an important point. And so I think, though, that's a case where political activism was, in fact, effective at reforming the system. And so I think so. so my question is uh, for a particular individual on the margin, uh, what is the most effective use of your time and resources uh, to, say, advance racial justice? And so it could be the case that we need sufficiently many people engaged in the political system to make that happen. But it could be the case given, you know, let's say there are sufficiently many people who are engaged in political activism to make that happen. For you as a particular individual on the margin, you could do more to advance the end of, say, racial justice by reallocating your effort to non-political concerns. So not to belabor the earlier analogy, but we could say it is critical to, to feed people that we have sufficiently many farmers. But you might say, okay, supposing that we do have sufficiently many farmers, uh, then this frees me up to say, try to help people get fed in another way. So we say like, well, okay, we've got enough farmers. So maybe what I'm going to do to ensure that people get fed is donate money to a food bank or something like that. And similarly, you might say, look, we do need sufficiently many people engaged in political activism to reform structural injustice. But if it is the case that there are enough people engaged in that activism, this frees up an individual on the margin to pursue other more effective non-political means of advancing the same end. You've mentioned a couple of times uh, that your book is called Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. So uh, it doesn't say why you must ignore politics, but you have mentioned a couple of times that there might be an obligatory aspect to this, that sometimes it might be obligatory either to not vote or in some broader sense, ignore politics. When, when, when might it be obligatory? Well, so this, I take it, is going to be one of the more controversial claims that I make in the book. I do it in the, I sneak it in in the concluding chapter. Uh, and I, I don't know, uh, how, how convincing it'll be, but I, but I think it's right that, uh, in many cases it is obligatory. So I'll start by giving you uh, a thought experiment as philosophers often do. Imagine that, I don't know, you're, you're coming home from a hike or something like that where you have, uh, bottles of water and you have a spare bottle of water. It's your, you know, it's your bottle, you own it. But as you're walking home with a spare bottle of water, you come across two people, each of whom request that bottle. The first one uh, has messy hair and would like your bottle of water to, you know, slick back their hair and make their hair look stylish. The other one is dying of thirst. And that's why they want your water to prevent dying of thirst. Say, okay, uh, assuming that you are going to give that bottle of water to one of them, it seems to me obligatory to give it to the person who's dying of thirst, as opposed to the person who has messy hair. And it seems like the reason it's obligatory to give it to the person who's dying is because you could just alleviate so much more suffering that way by preventing that person from dying, as opposed to preventing the other person from having messy hair. So you think, okay, from all else equal, it seems obligatory to allocate my help in a way that does lots of good as opposed to only a little bit of good. If you buy that, maybe you don't buy that, but if you buy that and you say, okay, well, look, time and effort allocated to politics does virtually no good. Maybe it even does harm, but even if it does good, it's very, very little. 
Uh, but if you took all that time that you might spend researching, debiasing, voting, all that stuff, if you just said, look, I'm just going to work overtime and I'm going to say, invest that money wisely. And then, you know, at the end of my life, you'll have tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, as a result. And these tens of thousands of dollars, if donated wisely, could save a dozen lives. And I'm just making up the numbers, but but this uh, gets the idea of it. Uh, you say, okay, uh, if, if the choice then is, you know, over the course of my lifetime, political engagement comes at the cost of a dozen lives saved for the sake of essentially zero benefit, uh, it seems like you've kind of done something wrong in the same way that you would do something wrong if you gave the bottle of water to the person with messy hair, as opposed to the person who's dying. It's just you you didn't allocate your resources in a way that alleviated a lot of preventable suffering. And so if you buy the water case, I hope you would buy the political case. Does that make your theory too demanding, though? I mean, most of us spend huge portions of our lives doing all kinds of things that don't create tangible benefits for anyone else. You know, I mean, I'm really excited for the new cyberpunk video game to come out in November, and I plan to dedicate a lot of hours to playing that. Um, and that's hours that I could have spent, you know, becoming a better voter, but it's also hours I could have spent working overtime in order to give money to malaria relief. And so does if we take your argument against like against putting time into politics, does that argument also mean that we should give up all of our hobbies and all of the trivial activities that bring us but say no one else happiness? Right. So we might be obligated to do that, but I, I don't want to have to say that for the sake of this argument. So so the argument that I want to make, uh, and, and this is a view that's been defended by other philosophers, they defend what's uh, what they call a conditional obligation of effective altruism. And the idea here is like, insofar as you provide help, you ought to provide the most effective form of help. But it's a thesis about the quality of help that you provide rather than the quantity. So the idea here is that in the, in the water case, we say, okay, um, maybe you don't have to give up all of your water, but you're going to give up this one bottle of water. Say, okay, given, uh, given that you're going to give up this one bottle of water, you should allocate it to the use that's going to relieve the most suffering. So you say, okay, given that you're going to spend, I don't know how many hours people spend on politics. Let's say you're going to spend like dozens of hours on politics, uh, you know, in the, in the next few uh, weeks. Say, okay, all I'm asking, I'm not asking you to spend any more time on malaria relief. All I'm asking you is to spend the time that you would have spent on politics and spend that on malaria relief. And so we can have an, a, an independent debate about the quantity of help that you're obligated to provide. So maybe it is immoral for us to watch movies and play video games and things like that. But I want to remain agnostic on that for, for this argument. I just want to say, insofar as you're allocating resources to politics uh, in the service of making the world a better place, just reallocate those resources. And so maybe the idea is that, like you said, it's, it's too demanding to ask people to spend 80% of their time helping others. I say, okay, what I want to say here is consistent with that. Maybe we only have to spend 10% of our time helping others. My thesis is that for that 10%, you have to help others in a way that alleviates suffering effectively as opposed to ineffectively. Uh, if we're ignoring politics, should we also be ditching political opinions and just be sort of blank slates whenever you're at a dinner party and politics comes up uh, and that you should just basically plead, I don't know, um, as, a, as a matter of some sort of obligation possibly? 
That's an interesting question. I don't know if we have to become total agnostics about political questions, but I think it would probably be healthy if we were more self-skeptical. So one thing I, I worry a lot about, even more so than the information question, is the problem of political bias. So even when we get information, we're inclined to process it in a biased way. And there's, of course, the familiar analogy between political partisans and sports fans. So I'm uh, a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan. And actually, Aaron, am I remembering correctly? I want to say you're an Eagles fan. Am I correct in this? Oh, no, I am not. Why did I uh, think that? My colleague Natalie Dowzicki is. I, I think Eagles fans are just people looking for excuses to throw batteries at people. Oh, dear. Uh, well, you might have to cut this. We might have to cut this short then. I I'm just saying, like, as a, I, it's disappointing that as a moral philosopher, you somehow ended up as an Eagles fan. Like, you yeah, think I, all of your I, training would have talked you out of that. I, I'm, I'm reeling. I don't know if I can continue uh, in this interview now. Oh, well, okay. Well, now, well, with that on the table. So, yes, I am, I'm a diehard Eagles fan. I don't throw batteries. Although we can get into the snowball Santa incident if you want. It's, it's complicated. It's more complicated than it seems. Uh, but but maybe we don't want to get into that. But so I'm a diehard Eagles fan. And so I process information about the Eagles and their rivals in a biased way. So I, I am more inclined to seek out and accept information that tells me that Carson Wentz is a better quarterback than Dak Prescott. Although after the first game, I, I don't even know if I can stand by that opinion. I don't know. But, but so you say, okay, um, I get the information. Uh, but I'm biased in the way that I process it. And political partisans are, are very much the same. So you can give them information, but they process it in a way that makes their side look good and the other side looks bad. And so I think that uh, uh, self-skepticism is healthy. So you could say like, look, I, I, I acknowledge that I'm susceptible to this bias. And so even though I do feel strongly that my my team, whether it's your sports team or your political team, is is the right one, is the best one. I feel strongly about that. I also know that I'm susceptible to this sort of bias. And so I should take a step back and and be more open to the possibility that my view is wrong. If you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, um, it's kind of interesting. We kind of talked about before, but it's like, you know, this episode is not about how we're stopping this podcast or this, you should stop listening to this podcast, but you probably are a more politically informed person than otherwise, or at least I, I would hope so. Um, now, in this situation, is there a normative claim for someone like that, for like someone like our listeners, uh, that they may not, you know, your book has said it's, it's okay to ignore politics. They may not have to ignore politics, but maybe they should reallocate their time even their political attention. So for example, local elections, school board elections, uh, things where maybe they're spending too much time wondering about who's going to be president while in the background, unions and other organized groups are controlling the school board elections. So maybe the, the missive here is that they should spend more time on other things, some of which might be political too, but on a more local level. Is that, is that a possible conclusion here? I, I think that's fair. So, right. So I think for one, the information problem is probably uh, not quite as devastating on the local level. And for some, if we're if we're talking super local, you could say, you know, I don't know, you see a pothole or something like that, uh, that, that should be fixed. You say, OK, like that's that's a pretty easy case of, of what ought to be done. Uh, but even in, in these sorts of uh, 
cases that, that you mentioned about, like the school board or so on. So it, I think it's somewhat easier to acquire the relevant sort of information. And so you might say, well, if you really want to use politics as a means of making the world a better place, it's just not going to happen if you're talking about voting in a national scale election. But if you got really involved at the local level, you probably could make a difference. And you could probably have more confidence that the difference is a good one rather than a bad one. Although I would say even then, and, and this is perhaps, I guess, uh, a question of how seriously you take this conditional duty of effective altruism, I would still say you could probably alleviate a lot more suffering spending the time you would spend on local issues, again, working overtime and donating the extra income to the Against Malaria Foundation. But if you don't want to go that far, you don't want to go that far with me, I would say it's still it's probably better to disengage from national scale politics and do more local stuff where you have a higher chance of, of uh, making a positive change. Is it possible? Are we, are we talking about are we are we attacking politics in a broader sense? I mean, we're saying if you live in a political world um, and maybe this is more true now in America where everything seems political, that if you live in that world, then it is okay to ignore politics in that world. But we also look at politics that makes us worse. As you pointed out, and Aaron and I have talked about extensively, politics has a really bad effect on people's personalities in many situations. So maybe we're trying to get to a world with less politics or fewer political issues and things that dominate our lives. Can, can we, if, if that is a good goal, can we get there by ignoring it? Or do we have to engage politically to try and get to the world where politics matters less? That's a good question. I, I'm inclined to believe if we paid less attention to politics, that might help. Maybe not zero, but less attention. I think that would help. And like you said, there, there's just all this evidence now that, that politics makes us worse people. So some of the stuff on polarization is really frightening about, I don't know the numbers exactly, but it's something like 15 to 18% of partisans think that it would be a good thing if large numbers of the out party just died. Um, you think that's, that's really troubling. Um, and, and so this is not to say, so sometimes, it, you know, I think people have this tendency to think, well, um, what this view implies is like, you know, we should uh, accept all political opinions equally. And it's like, no, that's not true. I think that there are certain political views that are intolerably bad. Uh, I, th I think that that's right. But I also think that it's possible to have deep political disagreements in good faith, and people just have different visions of how to make the world a better place. Uh, but but the problem is now, yeah. So like we're we're wishing death upon our political enemies. Uh, we discriminate against them uh, with respect to employment and distributing scholarships. So there's information on on you know uh, signals of political affiliation and, and applicants for scholarships. People are willing to discriminate on the basis of that. So politics is is swallowing up all these things in our lives, just as hatred of the out party is rising. And I think that this is really unhealthy. And I, and I think if we took a step back and like, okay, politics matters. We have to figure out a way to live together peacefully and productively and fairly. And that's important. Uh, but it doesn't have to infiltrate every single dimension of our life. It doesn't have to infiltrate, you know, our TV preferences or our grocery store preferences or, you know, our beliefs about, you know, wearing masks in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, I think that would probably make the political atmosphere somewhat less combative if we made it less of this holy war and more of, you know, how do we live together? 
uh, in a productive way and get on with our lives. You're a utilitarian, so you view moral questions, what's the right thing to do in the context of how much happiness they create. And as we've been discussing, politics doesn't seem to create a lot of happiness. You know, it makes it makes us miserable, it consumes a lot of time, it makes us dislike each other, and yet it just seems to keep growing. So not only are, you know, those of us who say I'm not going to participate told that we are doing something wrong or in fact bad people failing to live up to our obligations as citizens and so on, like we are frowned upon. Um, but it seems like everyone says, yes, politics is really bad and I, you know, I hate the other guys and, you know, TV news is too shrill and unprincipled um, and Twitter is toxic because of political arguments, and yet the solution to that, what everyone wants, is more of it, right? Like, well, that means that you need to participate even more in it, and we need to give government even more power to fix all of these problems. And so if if politics is so bad, and so many of us recognize it, what's the appeal? Like, why are we even having this conversation? Because it feels like if there was anything else in our lives that was that consistently toxic, more of us would have kind of already come to the conclusions that you have and said, this isn't worth my time. I'm going to walk away from it. Well, before I answer that, since you brought utilitarianism into it, can I ask you, what do you find more distasteful, my utilitarianism or my rooting for the eagles? Which which strikes you as more offensive? <laughs> I mean, I think that I think the two are just necessarily linked. They explain each other. <laughs> They're both just evidence of my flawed character. <laughs> right. Mistaken views breed more mistaken views. Okay. For, for, a, a virtue ethicist would not root for the Eagles. <laughs> yes. That's, yeah, so yeah, that's can, probably right. So, yeah. So, so I have this, so I have this line in the book that I, I just, it's for my son who was five years old at the time, which, which I just thought was great, where he says, uh, why does grandpa watch the news when he hates the news? And I thought, like, yeah, like, there it is. Like, why do people watch the news? And yet they hate the news and it enrages them. I think part of the explanation is that we get, uh, we, we kind of enjoy maybe this kind of righteous indignation. And I think part of it is we also like, uh, beating up on the other side. So, you know, we, we get this kind of, you know, moral outrage, but there's a kind of perverse pleasure we get into it where we say like, look how terrible, like, you know, my team is, is, you know, fighting for what's good and what's just. And the other, like, look how terrible. The other team is, and it's this kind of partisan warfare. And my hunch is that this is part of why we we continue paying attention to politics and participating in politics. You know, it kind of makes us, us miserable. It's like, well, we're part of this fight. Uh, it's like good versus evil, and the other side is is really evil, and we get a kind of uh, satisfaction from pointing out how how terrible they are. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.